Cool, so uh, this is my open topic. I can choose whatever topic I wanted to preach on. And so it's kind of dangerous, but it'll be good for you guys to see. <laughs> so I named my, the title of my sermon, Those People. And really, um, it's really like the idea of like those people and these different people that we see around us. And especially in this city, whether you're part of this church or not, um, you know that we live in a very diverse city when it comes to our coworkers, our friends, all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of different people, and a lot of differences. And so this sermon I really wanted to keep grapple. How do we handle differences? How do we handle all these different groups of people around us? And what does Jesus have to really say about this? And so we're going to be looking at the text of Luke 19, 1 through 10, in the middle of Jesus' ministry. Um, but before we go there, I want to open up with this question, this idea, just to get a, our minds rolling. Um, I want you guys to think about a close friend that you have. Maybe it's your best friend or just a close friend, someone that you're very close to. And think about, when you think about this person, think back and think, when did you meet this person for the first time? When did you meet your best friend or a really close friend? When did you meet them for the first time? So I'm going to tell a quick story about how I met one of my closest friends. His name is Lawrence. Um, so I met Lawrence back in high school. And so back then, you know, I, so we were both in the same grade, we were both ninth grade, you know, young boys being silly, and we loved to play Xbox, right? That was our thing. We spent all our time, free time playing Xbox and the video games, all that kind of stuff. And so my grade, our school, uh, we played this game called Halo 3. And so that was a big thing. We got on, we like got together and played a lot. But then this new student came, his name was Lawrence, and he played a different game called Gears of War. Um, the next slide will show just the, so I'm on the right, so this kind of shows the, the difference between us. I like this game, and he likes that game. I remember the, the very first time I saw him, he was, he was sitting in the lunchroom during lunch, and he was surrounded by a bunch of young boys, like, arguing with them. Not, like, viciously, but kind of, like, playfully, like, arguing with them. And I came over, and I heard that they were saying, Halo 3 is the best game. You know, that's our game. Like, that's our school. Halo 3, Halo 3. And Lawrence, poor Lawrence, the new student, is trying to say, no, I, I like Gears of War. I like this game. And so... All of a sudden, uh, my first impression was, this guy's different. He's not part of our school. He's not part of our video game kind of community. And so I kind of already created this rift and this barrier between us. And ironically, though, somehow, by the grace of God, I don't know what happened. As the years went on, we somehow actually became very good friends. He converted to playing our games. Poor him. Seriously. Um, he got bullied in, into playing our games. But um, it's just like so funny thinking about it because he and I are so close right now. We met back in probably... A ninth grade, that's probably like, uh, like eight, seven, eight, nine years ago, and we're still catching up, we're still talking about deep things, and to think that the first instance I met him, I actually created this difference based on a video game and separated him and I. Um, and I don't know how you guys met your close friends, how you might have just met your best friends, um, but funnily enough, I, I don't think you guys back then would know that these people would be your closest friends, right? You guys probably, it's kind of a haphazardous of life, maybe it's just random, um, but despite the differences, you guys have now lasted a long-lasting friendship, just like Lawrence and I. And so this is a story I just really want to get us thinking, because the ways that we treat our friends, the ways that we treat our coworkers, we see these differences, even the smallest things like video games. Um, and this is, with this uh, kind of idea, I want to move into the text of Luke 19. And so quickly before I go in, I'm going to give you guys the context, because it's the middle of the story, what's going on, what is Jesus doing here? Well, just really quickly, uh, Jesus is really just in the middle of his ministry. He's already kind of shown up to be this, this powerful spiritual figure. He's been doing a lot of teaching. He's done a lot of healing and miracles, driving out of demons, healing people, all this kind of stuff. So he's, he's got the spotlight on him. People know he's got a lot of spiritual power. Um, and he's interacted with a bunch of different people, different backgrounds, different economic, socioeconomic backgrounds. 
Um, and so this story actually doesn't seem like much out of the ordinary. It's just like another encounter. But I chose this story because I think there's specifically like, unique elements that I want to highlight. I think God is really trying to communicate when it, talks, when it comes to this idea of difference. And so we're going to read it. We're going to jump into the text. We're going to read through. And then we're going to go back and really try to pick apart what is God trying to say in this text. So I'll read it out loud for you guys. You guys can follow along with your Bibles or just on the screen. Uh, so it starts in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he got to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. But some man came to seek and save the lost. Is there an echo on this? It's okay? Okay, cool. And that's the, that's the story. It's really quick. There's only 10 verses. It might not seem much, right? Jesus loves a guy, all this kind of stuff. But um, let's go back and really pick apart what is God trying to say, what's going on here. So if we go back to the very first beginning, we really get introduced to this guy called Zacchaeus. And so he, we know that he's a tax collector. And if you've been to many sermons, you know that pastors, and we love to talk about these tax, tax collectors, um, because they really were an iconic figure back then. Uh, if you, the best modern-day equivalent I could say for us is if you think about the 2008 recession, right? You think about all those bankers that manipulated the, the market and caused an entire recession, world recession, all that kind of stuff. That's the tax collectors of that day. This is the archetypal, iconic, greedy businessman that we think about in the cartoons or all the stories and stuff like that. These tax collectors swindled money and stole money from this common folk. But not only that, there were also ethnic traders. Because... Uh, Back then, during that time period, the Jewish nation was uh, being ruled by the Roman Empire. And they didn't like that. They didn't want to be ruled by another foreign nation. But during that time, a tax collector job actually was a, if you were uh, like, like Zacchaeus, you were a Jew, part of the Jewish nation, but you actually sided with the Roman nation in order to collect taxes. So not only were you stealing money from your own people, you are stealing money and helping a foreign nation that was already oppressing your people. So not only was it Economic oppression, it was uh, racial uh, oppression, in a sense. And so people like Zacchaeus, other tax collectors, were ethnic traders, too. And not only that, he's a chief tax collector. So he's like a boss. He like, supervises, and was, so he's like the big shot there. And he's wealthy, and so he has a lot of money. He's really got a lot of resources for himself. And then when we had this dichotomy of this guy, this, this evil Zacchaeus, this evil tax collector, and the Jesus who's like, is in the, I'm the, I'm the spotlight. This is a good man. He's like a prophet or something like that. He's helping people. He's loving people. He's healing people. And there's a huge dichotomy between this good guy and this bad guy. And so as we read, this bad guy, this Zacchaeus, wants to see who Jesus is. doesn't seem like he knows what's going on, but maybe I heard, okay, there's this really cool figure going around. And he wants to see what's the whole commotion about. goes ahead and he climbs this tree because he's too short. And so when Jesus is moving along, 
Jesus is going through this crowd of people, a, a crowd of needy people, right? People who are probably loving him and want to be hospitable, people who have like broken families or hurt people. And this entire crowd of needy people, for some reason, Jesus stops in front of Zacchaeus. Jesus chooses to spend time and look at Zacchaeus and say to him, come, like, uh, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. And this is scandalous. This doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of needy people, a lot of good people who would have loved Jesus, who would have taken care of him, who, could, who need healing. But then Jesus chooses the, the ethnic traitor, the, the, the man who stole money from the crowd. What's going on? And I was really perplexed uh, what Jesus said. Like, uh, he says, the key is something that I'm going to stay at your house today. And I just really want to focus on that. Like, really, realize I was, I was perplexed because Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus, if I could come, if could come over, right? Um, sometimes we're modest and we say, oh, hey, like, friend, like, is it okay if I stay over? Is it okay? Can you help me out? We usually ask in a formal question, right? But Jesus, he's very straightforward, right? He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your place today, period. That's it. There's, like, no alternative, right? It seems very straightforward, and it might seem like an exercise of authority. You know, Jesus is strong. I must stay at your place, all this kind of stuff. And it can be, and I, it probably is. Um, but I was trying to think, and I was trying to really interpret what's going on here. And one of my interpretations is that it's not just the fact that he's exercising authority, but there's a sense of comfortableness. There's a sense of a relationship and security here. It's the same idea that if you're, if you're talking to a stranger, we might start off modest, you don't really know what's going on, all kind of stuff. But if you're talking to a really good friend, you'll joke around with them, right? You'll poke fun at them, you might like, tease them, all kind of stuff. The way you talk to a close friend is much more comfortable, much more teasing, all kind of stuff, and straightforward, as opposed to a stranger. So could it be that Jesus is trying to be much more comfortable, much more direct, as if treating Zacchaeus as a friend? Well, I don't know. I really, I mean, I'm just trying to interpret this text. But I do think there's one piece of evidence that might support my theory, and it's the fact that Jesus calls him by name. Right? He doesn't say, hey, you in the tree. He doesn't say tax collector. He doesn't say sinner. He says Zacchaeus. How does Jesus know his name? What's going on here? I don't know if it's Jesus Jesus, but... For some reason, Jesus chooses to address this man as Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus complies gladly. He welcomes Jesus so happily. And the people are so mad, they begin to mutter and say, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. See, Zacchaeus was defined by sin to these people. Let's take a pause right here. Um, next slide. Just we want to look at this, this, this tension between these three parties, right? And the question is, who is Zacchaeus? I, I put a little uh, tax collector guy, you see like the green businessman kind of archetype. But who, the question is, who is Zacchaeus to these people? On the left of the crowd, he's a sinner, and he's defined by sin. That's who he is. He's defined by his job, he's a tax collector, all the connotations that that's who Zacchaeus is. But for Jesus, though, he's Zacchaeus. He's his first name. He's defined by who he is, not by his sin. So, yeah, so you can really see by, just by the crowd in this small instance that the crowd has chosen to put up barriers, has to, trying to use the differences, whether it's the job or the sin, to create a barrier, to create a distance between Zacchaeus. And we see the dichotomy that Jesus does the opposite. Instead of trying to separate himself from someone evil, someone, an ethnic traitor, all kinds of stuff, he actually draws closer. He sees an opportunity for a relationship, an opportunity that works out. Where Zacchaeus welcomes him. And I think at this point, um, 
I think what Jesus is really trying to exhibit right here is that he's not allowing this, these differences. He's not allowing someone who's the odd one out. We've got to stop them. These barriers, of whether it's job or sins, all that kind of stuff, Jesus is looking past that for the opportunity for relationship. It sounds good on paper, right, to love people, all that kind of stuff. When it comes to a missional diverse church such as us, we want to be ready, we want to welcome people who are all different. We are different, right? I'm looking at you guys right now, and everyone's like all different backgrounds, all different appearances, all that kind of stuff. And it's great. This is what we, we cherish here at this church. Um, but I really wanted to, the reason why I chose this sermon, like I could have chosen so many different sermon topics, all that kind of stuff, because I want to press on this once again. It might be, uh, it might be redundant for you guys, it might be redundant for me, but... Um, we have to be always checking ourselves. Are we willing to look past the differences? Are we willing to look past things that we don't like, things that make us uncomfortable? If someone comes in and they say that something that, that's very different or something that's uncomfortable, they say they support Trump or they say things that are racist or stuff like that, are we willing to look past that and give them a chance? I want to show you guys actually an example when the church chooses not to look past the differences when they choose not to follow Jesus in the gospel. I want to talk about the Rwanda genocide. I don't know how many of you guys know about the Rwanda genocide. I learned about it really recently in my class. Um, I gave a brief summary, and there's not, there's not, I can't, I can't possibly get all of it, understand everything of reasons why it happened, but I'm going to give you guys the best summary as I can. Um, basically, what happened in the Rwanda genocide happened in 1994. What happens with this is an African country, there's these savages that came out with a really extremist propaganda and started to kill people. The pagans started to kill Christians. It was a really horrible sight, and that's not true. That really isn't. Um, it wasn't uh, some kind of non-Christian versus Christian kind of thing. It wasn't savages. It wasn't kind of this extremist propaganda. The mystery of the Rwanda genocide is, is just baffling because there's so many things that should have stopped the Rwanda genocide. First of all, as a church, this might shock us, but... Rwanda was a country that was 85% Christian at the time of the Rwanda genocide. 85% Christian. Not only that, um, Rwanda was seen as the hallmark of Christian missions. Like, people, the seminaries are saying, if you want to learn about missions, look to Rwanda. If you want to see the success of the church and what we've done, look to Rwanda. So we have this country that's, the vast majority is Christian. It's seen as the hallmark of Christian missions. And then this genocide happens where 800,000 People are slaughtered. And of all weeks that for this to happen, it happened on Easter week. Of all weeks, on Easter week, the week where the church comes together to celebrate the risen king, there's a slaughter of 800,000 people. Christians would worship together on Sunday service and by the evening would pick up their machetes and slaughter their fellow church members. This happened for an entire week. Pastors would bless people and then send them out as they would just slaughter part of their own congregation. From one Sunday to the next, all of a sudden, they're just brothers and sisters just lost, bloodied by their own congregation. What happened? This doesn't make any sense. 85% Christian. The hallmark of Christian missions. What happened? What was going on here? Again, I, 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 I'm not an expert on what happened in the genocide. Um, I only know a little bit. Uh, but from what I know... I'm just going to share with you guys right now. Um, there's this idea of difference. There's this sinister idea of difference that seeped into the church over hundreds of years that finally exploded and ripped 
the body of Christ apart. If you guys don't know, I'll, really quickly, inside uh, in Rwanda, there's these two classes, two classes called the Hutus and the Tutsis. What happened during the Rwanda genocide was that there was a, an explosion of extremism where the Hutus started to attack the Tutsis, and. Again, people are going to say it was a part of extremist propaganda that happened, is all, that happened really closely, but if we actually turn the clock hundreds of years before, we'll see actually what, what really sowed the seeds for what happened in 1994, around a couple hundred years ago in the, in the 1800s. Hutus and Tutsis were actually a very fluid class. The only difference between them was actually the number of cattle they owned. That's it. It wasn't a skin color. It wasn't anything like that. Like, it was simply the number of cattle that you owned. It was a very fluid class system. So if you got more cattle, and like let's say you were in the Hutu class, which is had less cattle, let's say you, you become a good businessman, you, you work really hard and you got a lot of cattle, you would just move up to the Tutsi class. But let's say you're a Tutsi class and you lost a lot of cattle for some reason, you just moved down. That's it. Part of it was also the king's appointing, but very, very fluid. Nothing, nothing hard, nothing like that. But what happened was a couple hundred years ago, Christian missionaries came over and they started to evangelize and spread the gospel, which is good. That part. Um, but part of it also was they started to spread false religious myths. They started to analyze the Hutu and Tutsi classes. And they started to think, oh, these Hutu people, they, they seem to be uh, of a different, inferior uh, group. They started to create this religious myths where they, they felt that the Hutus were part of a cursed uh, people group, going, dating back to the Noahic story. Now, I, again, I don't want to go into much into this. But basically, these, these missionaries came in and started to harden the differences between the Hutus and Tutsi. What used to be fluid, what used to be something that we could, people could just freely go between, suddenly was hardened by these Christian missionaries. As time went on, more missionaries came, more Europeans came, um, and they started to really harden and systematize these identities. So that when you were born, you were born a Hutu, and that's it. Your identity on your ID card was a Hutu, and that's it. And for a Tutsi, and that's it. And so what was sown there for hundreds and hundreds of years started to started to brew this toxicity and this hatred that happened between the two classes that finally erupted in the 1994 genocide of 800,000 Rwandans. And so when this happened, the Pope actually came to visit Rwanda. And while he was there, he said this quote, um, should be after the slide, and I think it's a very powerful quote that really speaks into it. He asked, are you saying that the blood of tribalism runs deeper than the waters of baptism? And one leader answered, yes, it is. I bring up the story not to make it depressing or anything like that, but this is a story about how a God-fearing church, a God-loving church, a God-loving country could allow difference to rip them apart. It could allow the, bl- the, the blood of tribalism, the blood of their groups, their skin color, or whatever it was, their, their socioeconomic, their jobs, or whatever difference they could find, that ran so much deeper for them instead of the waters of baptism. And we can stand here and say, you know, Ken, you know, that's, that's Rwanda. That's, that's a different continent, that's a different country. We're, we're America. We're, we're so much different. <coughs> but <laughs> I don't, if, if you've been part of a community, if you've been part of a church, if you've been in a relationship, you and I know of, of the ways that we can ostracize people, of the ways that we can hurt people, of the ways we can reject people. Again, like, I, I, I bring this sermon up, maybe to be redundant, but I, I, I want to be redundant because if you've seen a church tear apart itself, if you've seen your Christian brothers and sisters yell and destroy each other and use differences to attack each other, um, you have to just cling on and say, like, 
the, the waters of baptism must run deeper. It has to. We must cling on to the waters of baptism. We must cling on to the identity of Jesus much more than our political party or our jobs or whatever. Differences cannot separate us, not in this church, not in our church. It didn't hold Jesus back. It didn't hold Jesus back from reaching out and loving Zacchaeus. and shouldn't hold us back either. And so my charge, my first charge is to not let the differences hold us back in the relationship, whether it's in this church or outside. It didn't hold Jesus back and actually drew him closer to people who are different. And in the midst of this, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but some of you, uh, like me, might be thinking, well, there's a, there's, there's a, there is a caveat to this. Like, there's an issue. It's the fact that Zacchaeus was a sinner, right? He did sin. He did hurt people, right? He caused economic distress and depravity for the Jewish nation, right? So how are we going to deal with that? Are we just going to forget that Zacchaeus was a sinner and hurt people? Well, how do we deal with sin? Um, and often when, we, when we're confronted with sin, we, we kind of like shift between these two ideas. We can either accommodate it or we can judge it. Um, we can accommodate it in that fact that, you know, a lot of days we're very chill, right? We're very tolerant. We're going to be a very tolerant nation, which is good I, in, in some senses, right? We want to open up to creativity. We want to open up to different ideas. But sometimes we just say that it's chill, it's okay, it's fine. You know, if someone hurts someone, you know, it's, it's all right, I'm, I'm okay. If someone hurts you, yeah, it's chill, it's chill, no problem, no problem. And this, in this way, we accommodate. We kind of sweep the things under the rug. We actually don't deal with it. The other side of the spectrum is more of judgment. Can you believe what that person did? Can you, did you hear what that person said? I can't believe that. We start to judge. We start to condemn. Okay, we start to ostracize. We start to gossip within our circles and start to talk bad about different people and start to judge, right? In the midst of these two chill or you know, judging and condemning uh, um, options, I believe this text shows us a third alternative, a much better alternative, it's the alternative of repentance. If we look at the text, we can see how Jesus doesn't choose accommodation, he doesn't choose judgment, he actually chooses the best option, repentance. So we go back to the text on the next slide. Um, it starts in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. I've highlighted this in red. This is repentance, right? It's not just a confession of him saying, You know, Jesus, I've been a bad guy. I'm sorry, and that's it. Zacchaeus stands up and he says, I, I know I've done bad. I'm confessing it, and I actually want to change. I'm repenting because I'm turning away from old ways. I've exploited people. I've used my money and I've hoarded for myself, but now I want to change. This is the face of repentance. This is where he says he gives away half his possessions. That's a lot of money, right? I bet uh, our, our wages that we use now, half of it goes to our rent, right? Can you imagine, like, like uh, I guess uh, we're not going to give away apartment, but let's say you give everything in your apartment, right? You, I mean, that's it. Like, this guy gave away half of his possessions. That's a lot of money. And not only that, on top of that, he says, anything I've cheated, I'm not just going to give back what I cheated. I'm going to give back four times the amount. I want to bless people. I want to say I'm sorry, but I want to give you more money so you can actually have a step to go forward. This is the face of repentance, right? This is, Zacchaeus has known that he's done wrong. He feels convicted, and he actually is transformed. His money is redeemed to do good and to bless people. Right? This is the best case scenario. We're not sweeping his sin under the rug. We're just going to make him feel guilty. We're actually convicting him in a way that he actually has new life as a new face and a new identity. 
And what's really cool about this is this connects to the previous point. I was talking a lot about relationship, right? About reaching out to people who are different and really just loving them and starting this relationship. And if you look at this text right here, this repentance part in the, in the middle is actually sandwiched by relationship. Uh, if you go to the next slide, you see on the red. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. He looked at the Lord, right? He's in a relationship now. He says to him, look, Lord. And let's pause here. This, this is amazing. I, I, I didn't, if you read this quickly, you might not get it. I didn't get it. But he, what does he say? He doesn't say, look, Jesus. Look, prophet. He says, look, Lord. In the beginning, Zacchaeus was just here to see a spectacle. Just a cool figure and to see it in a tree and that was it. But Zacchaeus, in, this, in these few moments of this relationship, he realized something. This is not just a cool prophet. This is just not the thing I can see. This is God. He's in my house. God is incarnate, and he's right before me, and he's loving me. He's looking past my differences. What the Pharisees, what the Jewish people, what any of the religious people did not do for me, God did for me, and he's loving me. He's, he's spending time with me, and he recognizes that, and he says, he professes this, look, Lord, you are God. Look, God, I want to show you. I, I'm, I'm a changed man. Here and now, I give it away. I give it to you. And then Jesus says to him, right? They're having this conversation. Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's not a sinner. He's not defined by his sin. Jesus says this, this man is a son of Abraham. Not defined by his sin, but defined by a holy lineage. By the son, he's a son of Abraham. For the Jewish people to be called a son of Abraham, Abraham is a, is a, is a great figure for them. He's a patriarch. And this is a great and high title, great and high new identity that Zacchaeus has. Through his faith and his repentance, he is now inside the family of God. Repentance really is the best case scenario. Um... I chose another sad story. You don't have to forgive me. Um, but I want to show you another case where repentance doesn't work out. Um, let me go a couple, uh, a couple slides. Oh, yeah, this one. Um, this picture I found when I looked up on uh, Google, uh, the Stanford rape case. Um, if you guys were paying attention to the news back in January, there was a big commotion about um, the Stanford rape case, this rape case that happened on the West Coast. Um, again, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, I, how much time do I, have? I don't know if I have too much time to go into it. But really, I want to highlight one part of it. I'll give you guys some of the background, but I really want to highlight one part when it comes to the woman. Uh, basically, the, the, the details of the case that a woman was found uh, being raped by a man at this party. And so while, while she was being raped, two Stanford students were walking by, saw him, and were able to take him down and bring him to the police. Why was this rape case so big? Why did it attract the attention of this, the entire nation? It's because of the, how the justice system handled it and how the Brock Turner, the, the rapist, and his family responded. What happened was this guy was convicted and he was found to be um, guilty of the charge. But instead of being 14 years of prison, which, which is standard for this, he was given a light tap on his hand. He was given a light sentence where he was only six months for probation. When the news were documenting all that stuff, they kept on focusing on Brock Turner, saying, oh, it's so sad that this guy, he was a, a star swimmer. He was going to be in the Olympics. Uh, and, and it's such a tragedy that now he has to go to, and has this thing happen to him. 
his, his father came out real aware that my son should not have to deal with this. You know, he's such a good, you know, my, my, my life, uh, the son's life should not be ruined by this one incident. And because of these incidents, there's a huge commotion. What about the woman? What about the victim? What about the, the we're talking about the rapist and how, how, how sad it is for him. What about the woman who is emotionally traumatized, who is physically traumatized, who is, who is the victim of a crime, who, whose family was just utterly just thrown into chaos, who's, who, the woman's little sister is just filled with so much guilt of being connected to this. What about her? There was so much focus on poor, poor Brock Turner, poor, poor rapist. But what about the rape victim? And this blew up. This blew up all over the nation. And I'm not going to go into much of that, um, but I do want to highlight the woman because um, if you guys have time, uh, it's it's on a, it's on the internet. You guys can look up the letter that she wrote, um, and it's 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 decently long. I, I won't lie, but it's it's a it's it's just so convicting of how she goes through, how she describes the process of healing and the pain with her family and her boyfriend and all this kind of stuff. It's it's just it's it's really heavy, um, and I want to highlight the maturity of this woman. Um, I mean, the letter was definitely emotional. I'm not saying, like, she, she, she really is raw at times. But I was so convicted at the very end. She says things where she, she actually says that she, she wanted Brock to have a legit sentence, not just a six-month sentence, right? A, a, a sentence due worth of the crime that he committed. But she actually says, I also told, uh, I'll quote her, I also told the probation officer that I truly wanted was for Brock to, to get it, to understand and admit, that, to do, admit his wrongdoing. And she begins, she, gets that she, she says that she doesn't want Brock to rot in prison. She actually wants Brock to live his life. And I'm like, what? Like, I mean, I'm reading this. I'm, I'm full of rage. I'm so angry. I like, want Brock to you know, be punished forever, to get thrown into prison forever. But this woman, the victim of it, she says that she actually wants Brock to, to not rot in prison. But the only thing that she wants is that for Brock to get it, to understand and to admit his wrongdoing. That's it, you know. It's not, about the, it's not just about the punishment. It's not about the crime. It's just that for Brock to get it. Because the issue is that Brock didn't admit to it. This entire time, Brock was sorry. Like, he, he, was, try, he was trying to be, uh, uh, I guess, like, sorry. But he basically said that it was the alcohol. You know, I, I blame the alcohol, you know, because, because I put myself in a stupid situation with the alcohol, this, this whole situation happened. And he never said sorry. He never admitted to actually sexually assaulting this woman. And even after, he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to work hard to tell young kids to stay away from alcohol and all kind of stuff. And it's just really sidestepping the whole issue that he sexually assaulted and hurt this woman. And so for her in her letter, she, just, she says, I just want Brock to get it. I just want him to understand and admit it. And that's it. I just want him to understand that he hurt me. Just to say sorry. And he did it. And he still does. There needs to be a call and an answer to repentance. We're lucky we see a story like Zacchaeus and Jesus. This is a good story where Zacchaeus actually answers the call to repentance. But when it comes down to it, it's not just about the relationship. It's not just about the good times that we can have together. There is, a, there is crime. There is, there is a sin issue that we deal with. There are our friends and coworkers. They hurt us. They hurt each other. And we've hurt them too, right? We have all deal with a sin issue. And we all, we all 
need to answer the call to repent. Jesus, in this stance, he did not want to destroy this man. Just like this woman did not want to end Brock's life, right? Jesus didn't come to destroy. He came so that people would repent. So that the crime will be dealt with, but within a transformative way. So that people will be convicted rightly, but then be redeemed. So he actually be due to do good. So that Zacchaeus um, could use his money that he stole to actually give back and give back more. I was talking to my friend about the Stanford rape case. I was thinking, what, I mean, what is the best case scenario in this? This is such a horrible and terrible case. And I was talking to him, I realized repentance is the best way, right? Can you Im- let's imagine together that Brock is actually convicted. He realizes, I'm, I, I hurt this woman. He goes up to him, he repents, and, re- and he, he, he asks for forgiveness. He goes to jail for the right time. But when he gets out, he actually becomes a force of stopping future sexual assault. He actually becomes a figure in saying, I, I know what it's like to, to go to jail, to actually hurt women. And he's persuading and loving and trying to teach other young men and women about how to avoid these scenarios. Wouldn't that be the best case scenario? He, he not only receives the punishment that he deserves, but he actually is transformed to be a great force. He actually, I mean, I, I, I don't know, like, that's the best case scenario for us, right? It's not that Brock goes to, to jail forever, right? Or we just sweep it under the rug that he repents and he transforms and he actually gives the healing that the woman needs through his, through his repentance. And Jesus knew that. And so I think the charge that we have for today is that as we're walking, um, we don't want our, the sins and the flaws to hold us back. We want to move people together in repentance too. Right? Ultimately, Jesus came to seek the lost. That's the last verse that we have, right, in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the punchline. This is the point. This is the last verse of the story, right? If saving the lost is, is our goal, if this is our goal, this is what we're trying to strive for as a church, as a person, then our manner will be like Jesus, right? We won't use the characteristics of the people around us to ostracize them or to distance us. We'll have the manner of Jesus to draw close. We won't use their sins and try to accommodate it or judge it or anything like that. We'll bring them in a way that's loving, that's gracious, that's full of truth, and bring them to repentance and transformation and conquering of the sin. That's in our lives. That's in both the people around us and in our own, right? We'll share that too, right? But if our goal is to protect ourselves, if it's just to make ourselves comfortable, it's just to make our church groups more like us, it's to protect our ego, it's to propagate our own ministry ideas, what we like about church, then we won't reach the lost. It's just that simple. It's either Jesus' way or it's our way. And one way works and one way doesn't. So, my final, final thoughts that we have. Um, I have one of the slides that really puts up the three figures that we have. You see Jesus and he seeks the lost. It's kind of a summary of what we see. And Jesus figure, he seeks the lost. He builds relationship. He actually spends time with them. He doesn't call them to repent right away, right? But he builds that relationship. And because he builds that foundation, that framework, he gives the chance for repentance for Zacchaeus. But what about us? Do we lean a little bit more with the crowd? Are we shunning people in our lives? Are we shunning our coworkers, our family members, the people in our lives? Saying, you know, they're, you know, they're a little too far. They're a little too different from us. They're a little too sinful. They're too far gone. Or are we 
on the side of Zacchaeus, realizing that we are the lost. We're humbled by Jesus' love, by his grace for people like us who are full of sin, full of differences. We repent. We love others. We're transformed. Some of us are Christians. Some of us need to remember that we were lost. We were the different ones. We were the sinners. We were the outcasts. We were outcasts from God. But it's only by the grace of God. It's only the fact that Jesus stopped in front of our lives, looked at us while we were hiding in the trees, and said, I want you. I want to spend time with you. And called us to live transformative lives to love others who are hiding in the trees. Some of us don't identify as being a Christian, and that's okay. Some of us are still hiding in the trees. Some of us are not ready. You know, there might be some issues that, with Jesus, all that kind of stuff, and that's okay. But I pray, I pray that you, you would just consider this Jesus who looks at you and says, I'm not going to use differences to hurt you or to ostracize you. I don't care, you know, how different you are, how far you've gone. I don't, actually, I'm not, not, I don't care. I, I see the differences. He actually sees the differences. He sees the sin in your life, and he says, I still want to be with you. That's a better way to put it. No matter what you have, he sees it, and he still draws near, and he still wants to be with you. That's the Jesus that we worship. That's the Jesus that we love. The great I am. So where are we now? Where is your heart when it comes to the coworkers that we have, the people in our lives? Last couple slides. I just have some practical, really uh, nothing groundbreaking. It's just kind of like practical steps. If we're really, uh, if you feel convicted. Um, about reaching out to maybe some new people, some people that you've kind of ostracized in our lives. I'll just kind of give these little quick tips. Um, they're not the best. I just want to write something down just to give some practical advice. Uh, be ready for extra patience and grace. Because let's be real. We, I mean, we live in a diverse city. People who have different preferences, likes and dislikes, all that kind of stuff. Be ready to be patient. Because you're going to meet people who don't share the same hobbies and all that kind of stuff. And God calls us to love them anyway. And to go where they are too. Intentionally build a friendship. You know, we're... We're all here because someone intentionally reached out to us. It's not like we just tripped into this, right? Someone here reached out to us. Someone actually welcomed us and said, you know, you're welcome here, Mose. You want to hang out with us? You want to come to a missional family? There's intentionality when it came to building that relationship. Walk holistically in their life, even if it's foreign, even if there's things that you understand, even if the cultures are different, even if it's bad, even if they're going through struggles, even if there's drama in their life. Walk with them. You don't need to say, you don't have to have them at all the answers, but just walk with them, listen. Also bring the spiritual power of Jesus, right? We don't want to just be a good social club. We don't want to just be good, good social people. We want to bring the power of Jesus. We can't do this without, without the Holy Spirit, without God's power, right? So often pray, you know, pray for them by, when you're free time. Um, connect with them, with the, with the people of God, you know, with a missional family or go hang out, grab some food on Front Canav or something like that. Um, you know, if you can invite them to a Bible study, expose them to the Word, share some stories. You guys know the story of Zacchaeus now. You can share that, right? So... And I would say, really want to emphasize this too, be patient with yourselves, be gracious with yourselves, right? We're not the heroes, right? And we are going to struggle, we're going to get frustrated, especially if we're talking to different people. Be patient and gracious to yourself too, because it's going to be hard, you know? We're, we're constantly needing God's grace over and over again, so receive, seriously. We constantly receive from God. It's going to be hard. The last slide, the last thing I have, um, is a happy story. Enough sad stories, right? I have a really silly picture of my friend Lawrence and I. <laughs> so, um, he and I, you know, we've known each other since ninth grade. Um, and, and just this past May, he and I went to Taiwan together. Um, and this is the first trip that I ever went um, by myself, uh, you know, without my family, I think. Um, 
And it was just him and I. No one else. Not his family, not by my family. Just him and I as brothers just spending time together. Being silly, being dumb, um, enjoying this random mango thing, taking silly pictures. Um, we had a lot of fun just sharing about life, talking about women and girls and dating and talking about God and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, I'm so glad. Like, it's only by the grace of God. Like, I'm so glad that the, the Halo video game Xbox thing didn't drive us apart and that was it, right? Um, for some reason, we were able to look past the differences and actually become long-lasting uh, friends, even lasting to now. And so I pray that you guys will also build those long-lasting friendships with people that you might not expect. Who's ever out there in your lives? Cool. That's all I have. Let's, let's bow in prayer. Father God, uh, we thank you that you are a, a holy God. You are really holy and um, so, so good. You are the great I am. Um, you didn't need to um, step into this world that was so full of so much sin, so much sin. Um, even within the church, we're so messed up, God. We're so messed up. And yet you drew close to us, God. I thank you that no matter what, what, whatever background that we have today, no matter whatever we've done, God, we are not too far from you. And in fact, you want to draw close to us. You want to love us. You want to live life with us. And you love us so much not to accommodate or judge, but you actually want us to be transformed through repentance. Actually be redeemed from our past. Redeemed from the things that we've done. God, I thank you. I thank you so much that you're so good. And I pray that throughout this time that if we're feeling convicted, we have these new ideas of reaching out to our coworkers, I pray that you would fan that flame, God. I, I, I pray that we will see new friendships, God, new relationships built, God. And I pray, I just pray for patience, I pray for love, I pray for your spirit, God. That this church would grow, that this, this kingdom of God would grow, and that new and lost people would know that they are loved by you, God. May it be your will, God. May it just please be your will, God. And really help us when we get tired and frustrated. But we're really going to need you in this process. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.